welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are revisiting our friend, Mr. Satterthwaite, and our, I don't know, would we call him a friend, Mr. Harley Quinn? Can one as insubstantial and spirit-like as Mr. Harley Quinn even? Spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the story that we're doing in its publication history? With pleasure. The Man from the Sea was first published in October 1929 in Britannia and Eve magazine. Not one that we have heard of before. And then, of course, it was published as part of the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection in April of 1930. And we will be talking about this throughout the episode, but eagle-eyed readers will notice that the setting here of the Canary Islands is a place that Christie herself, in fact, visited post-disappearance, while she was desperately pushing her way through The Mystery of the Blue Train, her least favorite book that she forced herself to write. And she did, in fact, write this short story while she was in the Canary Islands as well, at that time, right after all of the mayhem surrounding the disappearance and the ongoing marital problems that she was having in that moment with her soon-to-be ex-husband. And I think that we can tell. Yeah, I think Uh, so too. We will talk a a whole lot more about that as we get into this. So let's talk about our victim, Catherine. I guess there are several or none, depending on how you want to look at it. But our first is Anthony Cosden, and he's a man in his late 40s, and he is aiming to kill himself. He sure is. He got a terminal diagnosis from Harley Street. Where else? (laughs) Exactly. He has the act one consumptive cough Mm -hmm. with very little time left. He just wants to take control himself and end matters. Next up, we have the mysterious woman in the villa who is also in her late 40s and has some bad news to share with her rather insensitive-seeming 20-year-old son. (laughs) But she doesn't seem to think of him as insensitive. She, in fact, worships the ground that he walks upon, which is why, rather than disappoint him, she, too, is aiming to kill herself shortly. Right. Are we sensing a a theme here of suicide? We are. And then, last but not least, um, we have the English swimmer. And so it's known on the island that many years ago... I don't know, let's say 20-something years ago, a man in his 20s or 30s died in a swimming mishap involving the jagged rocks of the island. And it's a well-known thing in the hotel that there was his death there. And one could argue that he is the titular man from the sea, although there is an argument to be made that Mr. Harley Quinn himself Mm -hmm. perhaps qualifies as that titular man. We shall see. Are you intrigued, dear listeners? (laughs) We hope so. Let us continue. We're not really going to talk about suspects because, as you can tell by now, it is not, it is really not that kind of a story. But I suppose the suspects are the people about to take their own lives. They're going to do themselves in, and we're not sure if they're going to be successful or not. So they are the ones who are perpetrators of suspicious and unfortunate behavior. Right. 
So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Yeah. Mr. Satterthwaite is, per usual, on vacances, <laughs> this time on a Spanish-speaking island, which is clearly the Canary Islands. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not his usual territory or his circuit, as we know from all these other stories, as in Deauville, the Riviera, the Scottish Highlands. Scotland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, and London, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, and we know this um, mostly because one of his many duchess friends because you know he has so many has written it's like duchess 14 i know roster seriously <laughs> she's written to him you know she wants to scope out how the island's going because she's really tired of her normal circuit so he gets this letter from her and he's very you know he's very appreciative because he is kind of actually rather unhappy on the island which seems to be a pattern that at any time he goes out of his established travel pattern, he's not happy with the results. And we open one of these stories with him being discontented. We certainly had that in The Soul of the Croupier, which was the last story that we covered. Right. Right. When he was forced to go to Monte Carlo. <laughs> right. Oh. God, I know. So Mr. Satterthwaite wanders in his disconsolate way um, from his hotel just in time to see a dog rollicking through the garbage, just loving life. Right. Just, just having a complete love affair with life and the state of being alive. And then that poor dog gets run down by a car. Yeah. That just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, but not before and standing the, up. Yes, the dog stands up and gives him a doleful stare and then dies. Mm-hmm. Basically, the dog yeah, is saying, Catherine. what did I do that the world would do this to me? The dog is pulling a canine Nancy Kerrigan. Why? 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 <laughs> exactly that. And then, you know, Mr. Satterthwaite, I would be more shaken, let me put it that way, than Mr. Satterthwaite was. Don't get the sense that he's a dog lover. No, he does check to see if the dog's actually dead. So I guess he doesn't just, you know, walk away. But uh, he wanders onto this rather more isolated area of the island. And there's a large shuttered green villa above the scenic cliffs that are crashing into the sea. And then there's a pathway to a secluded seating area overlooking those cliffs. And Satterthwaite uh, very quickly finds out he is not alone. Instead, who's there, Kemper? Well, instead, there is a man there who Mr. Satterthwaite thinks of as young, even though he is past 40. Mm-hmm. He's in his mid to late 40s. It's just that he is young in spirit. He's just never grown up. So it's not really a compliment that he that he thinks of him as a youngish sort of a man. It means that he's never really dealt with life in a complicated and sophisticated way. Right. He just sort of lives his life merrily, very much like... The dog, right. <laughs> Mr. Satterthwaite, just saw get run over. And he has, in fact, um, the same look on his face, apparently. Yes. Why does he have that same look on his face, Catherine? Well, his name's Anthony. He complains to Satterthwaite that he is, well, first he says, damn. And then he feels that was uncouth and that he must apologize. And it's just that he keeps going to this spot to be alone. And every time he goes there to be alone, somebody else shows up and ruins it. Um, And he mentions that he'd come there last night. And there was a man in a (gasps) Harlequin costume chilling on the bench. And so that just happened. He thought he must be from the other hotel on the other side of the island where they're always having fancy dress balls. He couldn't be alone last night. And now, of course, Saturday... Satterthwaite is there, and Satterthwaite, his first reaction is not to think really that this guy is weird, but to get really excited 
about the mention of Harlequins. He's basically Kemper in this scenario. Harlequins, you say? (laughs) Wearing motley dress and garb and masks? Oh, yes. It's just what gets Mr. Satterthwaite's bloodless little body running. So after Mr. Satterthwaite gets over that excitement a bit, he realizes that the look on this man's face, what it reminds him of, is this dead dog that he just saw. So... Because Mr. Satterthwaite is half woman, I could put that as item number three on the checklist of things that need to be ticked off in a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. Some reference to Mr. Satterthwaite having feminine qualities. Right. Because due to these feminine qualities, he's able to prod Anthony's story out of him, which is that Mr. Cosden had been living a rather aimless life and he had never married. He'd never had the son who he wanted. But he had been just generally enjoying himself. And then a few days ago, he found out from his Harley Street physician, Q Stagecoff, that he only has six months to live. So he has come to this island where he once had such a wonderful time to kill himself. And here's where I just want to pause and reference another work of Agatha Christie's because I think this is really an interesting parallel We don't talk very often about the Mary Westmacott novels Mm -hmm. on this podcast because they are not mystery novels. There also aren't romance novels, which is what everyone insists on calling them. They are, I think, intellectual and emotional exercises that Christie enjoyed taking uh, as a break from her mystery writing career and doing so under her pseudonym, which for a long time was not actually discovered. But there is a novel that she wrote in, I believe it was published in 1934, Unfinished Portrait. And it is widely acknowledged, including by Max Malone himself, to be Christie's most autobiographical novel. And the protagonist of the novel is named Celia. And Max Malone, among others, has said, Celia is Agatha. And it does a lot to explain her state of mind in the years surrounding the disappearance and the breakdown of her marriage. That novel opens up with a man happening upon a woman on a bench overlooking a cliff in a an unnamed exotic Spanish garden about to kill herself. And that woman is Celia, and she then proceeds to tell her life story This is a framing device of the novel. She then proceeds to tell her life story from childhood on up to the present to this man. And clearly, (laughs) this was a scenario that Christie just had in her brain because, you know, I'm not saying that there was a, well, we, we know that there was a literal cliff and a literal garden in the Canary Islands. It's actually in Tenerife. That's right. the specific island that she traveled to with her daughter, Rosalind, and her secretary, Carlo, uh, right after the disappearance. And we can even visit the Actual garden location. itself. Yeah. yeah, which apparently has, it's not a statue. It's not like a stone statue, but it has some sort of a mannequin mock-up in the garden of Agatha Christie chilling with Harley Quinn. (laughs) I I will Instagram it or put it on our social media so people can look at it. It's not a great angle on it, but there is an actual garden. This is a real island. It's a real spot. And you can tell as she is describing that garden in the story. It's very, you can always tell when, when Christie is describing something from life because there is a specificity that she usually doesn't bother with. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that critically, but you know, if if it's something that's coming from her mind, she usually just isn't all that concerned with physical appearance. But if she has it sitting in front of her, either as she's writing or, you know, it was there before she, she describes it much more specifically. So yeah, I have to think that that 
was indicative this idea of someone sitting on a precipice contemplating suicide was indicative of her state of mind um, in and around those troubled couple of years that she had after her mother's death and when her marriage was was going through its full breakdown. You know, the disappearance began when her car was found on the edge of a lake overlooking a sort of quarry. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I find myself wondering, did she sort of drive to the edge, look over it, decide not to quite go through with it and then move on. Obviously, we'll never know. We did a whole episode about how we'll never know about what really happened in the disappearance. But this is all very much wrapped up in the setting of this story and then where this story goes, which we shall see in a moment. Right. I mean, I think the interesting thing here is the idea that he has gone off to this island, yes, because it reminded him of an incredibly positive experience in his life, but also because he doesn't want to be a burden on his friends. That's like a big deal to him that he doesn't have anybody close enough to him to allow this diagnosis to be a burden. And so rather than that, he's going to go to a place that he cared about once one last time and then just end it. It's a little confusing because we don't quite learn why it's so significant to him until later. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't really detail everything that happened to him on the island when he was a young man to Mr. Satterthwaite. So he is holding back something, which is why we are are still in the world as it appears to be. Right. And and so Satterthwaite basically convinces him to wait, at least for a little while. Satterthwaite essentially puts it as, well, I don't want to be thought of as responsible for pushing you off a cliff. So he he buys time. That's what Satterthwaite is doing here. He guilts him into not committing suicide quite just yet. Correct. Yeah, and so and so Anthony goes back to the hotel, except Satterthwaite doesn't. Satterthwaite wanders back up to where that shuttered villa is, at which point he starts snoopily pushing at the shutters. Um, yeah, seriously. Yeah, and it's a little bit like cheese. Like you would think Mister Satterthwaite might have more decorum than that, but apparently not. You know, he's <laughs> he's abroad. Yeah, right. You can just like start breaking and entering abroad. Apparently, it's abroad rules, I you guess. know, and anything goes. I- island rules. <laughs> island rules. Yeah. Abroad. So one of the shutters that he pulls on, not only does it swing open, but to his horror, there's a beautiful woman behind it, dressed in black and wearing a mantilla. He basically starts babbling in some kind of, it's described as like an Italian-German hybrid, (laughs) which, gee, that can't even really... And he thinks that she speaks Spanish, and I guess that's just his best attempt to say something halfway intelligible to her. Right. And instead, she responds to him in English and invites him in. This woman, you see, also senses that half-womanish quality of Mr. Satterthwaite's, and she begins to tell him her story. So we get another little diddly-oo, 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 diddly-oo back into the past, where this woman was an 18-year-old bride to a man who she thought she was in love with. He was very dashing and interesting, and he just charmed her. And he brought her to this island, to a a grand villa on the island, perhaps this very villa in which they stand. And that uh, is when the abuse started. And he beat her, and he verbally berated her, and he beat her some more. And he, in fact, beat her so badly, and this was a detail that I was quite surprised to find in the short story. He beat her so badly that she was pregnant and the pregnancy turned out to be stillborn. Her son was born not alive. It's um, surprisingly graphic about how abused she was. 
Yeah. I mean, and here's the thing. This is where I think Agatha Christie's state of mind when she was writing the story comes through a bit. I think she was feeling battered emotionally, but I think she was feeling pretty beaten up by what had happened to her, both in her own marriage and just on a national stage. I mean, the press, even in Parliament, people were complaining about how much money had been spent on this hoax of a disappearance and who was going to pay for it and who did she think she was. And I think you can you can feel that sort of victimization here in in that depiction, because it is unusually graphic and grim for a Christie yeah. short story novel or anything. Right. Really very surprising. <laughs> very surprising. So the marriage was a disaster. After a while, this all takes place over the course of a year. There are some women at a hotel on the island, and we get the sense that perhaps this lovely husband was a bit of a flirt with other women, although that's implied, not stated. They egged him on um, to swim around the island, jump off the cliffs, and um, it was known to be treacherous. And he was egotistical enough to take them up on their dare. And he jumped in the sea, and it thrashed him brutally against the rocks and killed him. Right. Everybody sees this happening because he was doing this to be seen. And so, of course, also this young bride is there, and she's on her knees on the cliffside praying. And of course, everybody there believes her to be praying for his survival in the water. But as she tells Satterthwaite, she was actually praying to God that she stopped wishing that he would die. Because that was her actual reaction. Her actual reaction was, oh God, I hope he dies. And then instead she felt so guilty about it that she got on her knees and prayed to God to let her stop thinking that. And that too, that extra little quirk in her thinking is so powerful to me. Because I think another writer who hadn't gone through the emotional turmoil she just had would have written it such that she was actually wishing for him to die. Full stop. That's it. That's the twist. You think that she was wishing, she was, you know, praying for his recovery. She was praying for him to die because he was such a horrible person. But no, she was praying for him to die. But then she was so guilty right. about her state of mind that she was praying to change who she was as a person. That is coming from the brain of someone who has gone through some real struggles. Yeah, it's it's really pretty powerful. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, he does die. He's thrashed to death by the current against the rocks and he's killed. And the worst thing to her is it's a huge relief. Yeah. She says she's an, she was an orphan and he was like the only person that she'd had. And of course he like beat her and verbally abused her. But now she has this house and these servants all to herself and she just gets to be quiet and at peace on this island. Right. So cut to a little while later. And uh, eventually that that relief and that peace does turn into loneliness, as of course it would for any human being. And a handsome man trespasses on her grounds and goes up to the house. And she decides to pretend that she's a Spanish girl who is also trespassing. And together they break into the villa where they proceed to spend one glorious day and night together. We aren't given the details, but we know what oh, so she probably kind, happened. She kind, of, she kind of forces it home. She's kind of like, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, it's like, there's not a lot of subtlety in case you didn't get it. Yeah, well, especially because of where of where we go next. So 
The next day, the handsome young Englishman goes back to the villa looking for her, but she lied about who she was, and obviously the villa is hers, so she can hide in it, and she go, hides in her bedroom, and she never sees him again. Nine months later. About 40 weeks later, yep. <laughs> she gives birth to a son. Yeah, and now her son is 20. He is away. He has a really good job. He's educated, and he's met a girl that he's in love with, and they're coming to visit the island. But, unfortunately, the mysterious woman of the villa has always told her son that his father died tragically before his birth and now she feels like they're going to ask questions especially if he's getting married and she's just never spoken about his father and she's afraid that she now is going to have to tell him that he's a bastard and that it's going to ruin his life and that he's going to break up with this girl who he loves out of shame And so rather than tell him and have him do this, she is making plans that she is going to make sure all her ducks are in a row and that there's nothing in her papers and that everything is left well and she's going to kill herself before they get there. I'm not exactly clear on how that's really going to solve her problem (laughs) because couldn't they just still look into the whole situation and realize that he was born a bastard even after she died? Well, the dates would, you would think, not line up correctly, right? Yes, but I I suppose these things have been fudged before. I just I just don't know how her death really gets her more coverage or obfuscation as to the truth, but I suppose it could. It's a quibble. I, I wasn't really bothered by it, but I thought of this, by the way, as the textbook romantic drama catalyst. Like we see it in La Traviata, where the lovers are living in unwedded bliss together, and then the man's father comes and tells his lady love that, you know, this man has a sister. Right. She's not going to be able to get married because you two are living in sin and her life is going to be ruined and, you know, you're ruining the whole family's life. So, of course, then she sacrifices her happiness and, and leaves, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is just a variation on that on that age-old theme and done perfectly well. Right. So, Cyrus Wade listens to all of this and he requests, could she please give him 24 hours before she kills herself? Because apparently this is just what Satterthwaite's been doing all day. He is a, his, he's a his suicide, suicide preven- strategy is, could you put a pin in that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if he were, his suicide prevention hotline is like, okay, but like, um, let's just give it like four hours. <laughs> 1-800-PUT-A-PIN-IN-IT. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? Here, she agrees. She agrees. And he also tells her before he leaves could she please leave the shutters unlatched? And she also, by the way, should maybe also stand vigil at her unlatched shutters. But she's so intense that I totally believe that she'd be like, oh, absolutely, I'll do that. Right. Yeah, she's very intense. <laughs> she, she's like, you want me to stand in a statuesque, dramatic manner, silhouetted by the rolling, roiling sea for hours upon end, not eating or even moving a muscle of my body? Absolutely, I could do that. Cool. <laughs> Sounds like a good use for my last, like, 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) So back at the hotel, Satterthwaite finds Anthony, who is headed out again to take a stroll, elbow, elbow. We know what that means. And uh, Satterthwaite tells him, yeah, he's going to take a stroll right off that that cliff. Yeah. And Satterthwaite tells him that he wandered up to the villa 
right by the garden. And he found an unlocked window and climbed in and wandered around. And, you know, just as a lark, maybe just a final thing to see, Anthony might want to do that before going ahead and killing himself. Right. And so the next morning, Satterthwaite very happily goes on down and eats breakfast and then takes a stroll on over to the villa where... The mysterious woman of the villa runs out of the house at him, throws her arm around him, and, like, kisses his cheeks passionately over and over and over again, and asks him how he knew. What is happening, Catherine? (laughs) Tell us about the world as it actually is. I'm so confused. There aren't clues here except, duh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really that confused. No. Um, obviously Anthony Cosden is the mystery man from 20 years ago who spent one glorious... What? I know. Kelsa, please. (laughs) Um, who spent one glorious day and one glorious night with that mysterious woman in the villa. And guess what? It is his son who is the one who's coming to visit. You mean all that time that he was bemoaning the fact that he never created a son of his own? He had a son all along? All along. Oh, the delicious, wonderful irony of life. So, the mysterious woman in the villa tells Satterthwaite they are headed immediately (laughs) to get married. And then they're going to tell their son that there had been a a little mix-up. Just a little, you know. Like, how does that work? A little oopsie. How does that work? (laughs) You know, just blink a couple of times and uh, squint a little bit, and this will just all make sense. They're going to say that he was presumed dead 20 years earlier and whatever, whatever, and it's all been cleared up, and now they are a happily married couple, and they are his parents, and they are wedded, and he is legitimate. Right. Does it really work like that? I don't think it does, but... We're in Spain. I don't know. With apologies to Spanish listeners, maybe maybe the law works differently there. I mean, she was in the Canary Islands when she wrote this. Maybe she did a little research. About paternity there is law? That other little that other little snafu about Anthony Cosden only having six months to live. What about that, Catherine? Well, pish posh, Kemper. <laughs> this mysterious woman is basically like, not on my watch, Satterthwaite. And um, she basically says, you know, I've heard plenty of tell of these cases that they say are incurable, but I know that that's not always true. And I just, I know people and this is not an issue. And do you think it's an issue, Mr. Satterthwaite? And Satterthwaite's like, no, sounds totally right. I've known that too. And like, also, if anybody's going to win here, it's going to be you. Here's the funny thing, though, and we still have, of course, one final button to get to, but I think it's appropriate to discuss this here. This is technically a happy ending, but it is one of the more tenuous happy endings I think I've ever come across in a Christie story, because there are so many ways for this to go south. Right. No pun intended, I guess, since we're in the Canary Islands. He could die anyway. The son could be like, mm, no, I'm pretty sure this this whole thing actually was just hushed up and I was illegitimate and you were lying to me all this time right. and that's bad. Like, it's a or, happy or ending. Or Anthony but- could be a like, giant creep. Maybe he's never settled down in almost 50 years of his life and like maybe he will just really hate that. And maybe there's a reason why he never settled down and they only knew each other for a day and a night and now one more night before they're supposedly going to live happily ever after. I'm just not feeling a lot of engagement with the happy ending on this story, which again, I think just speaks to Christie's frame of mind. I'm glad that she was able to write the story when she was on the Canary Islands and slogging her way through the mystery of the blue train, 
being miserable because you can tell she was exercising some stuff when she was writing this and she was enjoying, it's probably not the right word to use, but she was at least engaged in the story when she was writing. You can tell, you can tell. And this was in fact one of the stories that she liked the most out of the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. I don't know if it's one of mine just because it's, it's not a mystery at all. And I just do tend to like the puzzle mysteries, but there certainly is a lot going on here and it's unusual and it's written with a lot of flair and style. Well, and we haven't even touched on the ending. True, true. It's just the tenuous nature of that happy ending is fascinating to me. And I think not that she always ties up every every loose end, but I could be reading into it. But it's like, I don't even feel like she necessarily believes in this happy ending. We'll just have to hope that it actually ended up happily. Right. I mean, she, you know, the mysterious woman in the villa essentially says, you think that all of these pieces came together after this um, amount of time and that that's not meant to be, basically? That's also yeah. that's also her rationale about why he's not going to die in six months. Right, which just could very easily be faulty. And then, of course, we do get this final twist. So what happens, Catherine, at the very end of so the story? So Satterthwaite leaves the woman, and he goes back down to the garden and those cliff benches, where, sure enough, Harley Quinn is sitting, waiting, oh! waiting for Satterthwaite. And Satterthwaite's not surprised to see him. And Mr. Quinn kind of compliments slash gives genial shade about Satterthwaite playing Providence. But Satterthwaite essentially is like, hold up, you expect me to believe you didn't also intervene somehow? Satterthwaite is not as dumb as he sometimes may seem. Again, he's half female, so he's got lots of Uh, uh, intuition. Oh, gosh, it's such a weird, weird characterization. But go on, what um, what does Mr. Quinn tell him? So Mr. Quinn tells him, you're right. Mr. Satterthwaite, I was interceding on behalf of someone who very much loved that woman in the villa and who was trying to right a wrong. And Mr. Satterthwaite is like, wait a second, the only other person involved in all this whole mess is the dead guy, the abuser who drowned in the sea. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Quinn confirms that, yes, in fact, this is what he does. He works on behalf of lovers or people who are trying to right a wrong. And we certainly know that that man who drowned committed a lot of wrongs in his life. And it seems that some Mr. Quinn was acting on his behalf. It doesn't read as an apology by any means for what that man did. It just is a bittersweet twist on the whole thing. There is something slightly weird that's almost an abuse apology at the very end. If you want to pick it apart too much, it's that essentially like, oh, he loved her too much. I know. I know. And I mean, Um, I have to say I cringed slightly because I was like, oh no. I did too. I did too. There's a little bit of that, a little bit of um, carousel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of carousel. But is it possible, mother, for someone to hit you hard like that? Real loud and hard. And not hurt you at all? It is possible, dear. For someone to hit you. Hit you hard. And it not hurt at all. The problem with Carousel is that Carousel has one of the most beautiful musical scores ever written. And the problem is it's so lush to listen to that it almost sweeps you into it before you start parsing what it's actually saying and then just get 
super skeeved out. Before you realize it, it's based on like a pitch black Eastern European right. like, folk tale. Yes, correct. Yeah. 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 Rodgers and Hammerstein just lifted that thing and set it in Maine, but whoa, you can tell where it originates. And yes, it is. I, I love Carousel, though. Um, well, yes, because it has the, so it has one of the most beautiful score, musical theater scores of all time. Yeah, absolutely. We get a hundredth or maybe a tenth of that problematic messaging though in this i think you have to read a little bit into it but it is there you're right it it is there there. yeah but speaking of speaking of carousel we're kind of glossing over a point is how did mr quinn intervene on behalf of a man who's been dead for 20 some years well Catherine, is mr quinn himself even alive a question I think that we have made fun of in various other Mr. Quinn episodes, but it is made a little bit more on point here. Yeah, we are pretty much given an answer to that question because Mr. Quinn, rather than walking back from the cliff's edge with Mr. Satterthwaite to the hotel, says that he's going to leave the way he came. And as Mr. Satterthwaite is leaving, he looks back and he sees Mr. Quinn walk in off the cliff right on to the cliff's edge. Yep. And it doesn't look like he's going to stop anytime no. soon. That there is a ghost. Yeah, it's or some kind of angel, I suppose, he's, depending on how you want to look at it. We've joked about it in the past, but I mean, if he is some sort of interlocutor to some other higher power, yeah, some other higher power, that explains why he somehow manages to be in various situations at the right time and how, in fact, then he can use Satterthwaite as his sort of delivery device. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a weird twist. And, you know, it's also funny because where else have we seen ghosts and Christy? (laughs) Mystery of the Blue Train. The only one thus far. It's true. And you know what? I'm not going to make fun of the poor woman and her state of mind at the time she was she was riding on that island. But I guess she was she was feeling the need to turn to a world other than the one in which she was living. <laughs> so, right. Right. And I kind of get it. You can make an argument, right, that um, somebody like Poirot is also always in the seemingly right place at the right time for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is quite blatantly that Mr. Quinn is not human. Yeah, well, it's funny. When we were chatting with Sophie Hannah in our Sophie Hannah episode, she made that point, which I thought was so well put, about how Poirot and Marple are super gross. Right, right. They don't exist by the same rules in the world as all the other characters in the books that they populate, which is why it sort of makes sense that they Peter Pan and they don't age the same mm-hmm. way and how Tommy and Tuppence don't follow that model, which is why they do. And I think she's totally right. And what she's, what Christie's doing with Mr. Quinn is just taking it one step further. Right. He's a literal superhero. He has a superpower. I mean, however you want to characterize it, I think we could do on, we've talked about this before on one end of the spectrum, we have, Tyler Durden, Fight Club, yes. and on the other we have Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. So how, however body or innocent you want to get with your reference, but that's that's the kind of entity that we're 
talking about here. Right, exactly. So in other words, either Mr. Satterthwaite is schizophrenic or... Mr. Quinn is supernatural. Which is an excellent question to pose before we move on to other stories, because I think, and it is it is fascinating to me ha- having parsed these stories in order, because we really do get a greater understanding of who Mr. Quinn is as we move along in the collection. Mm-hmm. Because it does start out that we're not sure. It just seems a little odd. And now it's getting progressively weirder right. and more and supernatural. And we definitely get to the point where that exact question of how much of this is in Mr. This is Mr. Satterthwaite's head, what exactly is going on here? We will be grappling with that with that very question as we we move into the latter stories of that collection. Right. So I'm quite enjoying our Mr. Quinn yeah. conversations, I have to say. Yeah, I mean they're at least they're different. And they never fail to be at least intriguing. Agreed. That is The Man from the Sea. A standout Mr. Quinn story. Puzzle mystery, though it may not be. Join us next week for The Body in the Library. We're going marpling. We're marpling. Can't wait. Please feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. We are so thankful of the ratings and reviews that we've gotten, but we want more. We want more ratings and reviews so that more people can find oh us and gosh, interact so with more listeners. Oh my gosh, so greedy, Veruca Salt. Listeners, so greedy, I know. Uh, what can I say? We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.